Christy, something happened a long time ago in Haiti. They got together and swore a pact to the devil. They said, we will serve you if you'll get us free from the prince. Mm. True story. Ever since, they have been cursed. And after suffering so much for so long, to face this new horror uh, must cause some to look up and ask, uh, have we somehow been forsaken? To the people of Haiti, we say clearly and with conviction, you will not be forsaken, you will not be forgotten. Well, that's two ways to talk about what happened in Haiti. I'm Jeff Horwich, this is In The Loop. thought I'd stick them next to each other there. Uh, The crazy thing is that Pat Robertson was on the air actually raising money for earthquake relief. Um... Thanks, Pat. Way to inspire. we got a big variety of things on the show today, so I don't want to give you the wrong impression. We're going to go a lot of places before uh, this is all done, and we will have a little bit of fun along the way. But the earthquake, which happened earlier this week, is, of course, I mean, so huge, unthinkable, really, and unignorable, that we are going to get into it in our way here for the first part of the program. I know that uh, the way podcast listening works, by the time any of you hear this, you'll have heard plenty of the -the on-the-ground reports and uh, a lot of things like that. So we're going to try not to retread what you have been hearing plenty of on the news, but to pick a couple of angles that I hope will be enlightening for you and enlightening for me as uh, I've learned about them. And uh, then we'll get on to some other stuff. I'm going to begin, though, with uh, a call up to Alaska, which seems like sort of an odd place to call. But we put a line out to public radio land, as we often do in these situations, uh, to people who have corresponded at some point maybe with a Marketplace or other American public media shows or with us here at In The Loop, to see just what kind of Haiti connections anyone might have. And uh, this fellow wrote back to us, his name is Daniel Beichlein. He lives near Juneau, Alaska, with his daughter Sophia. And Sophia is 15 years old. She was adopted from Haiti. And he and his daughter are still very much in contact with Sophia's birth family, who lives in the area around Port-au-Prince. So I gave Daniel a quick call just after the earthquake happened uh, to see whether uh, he'd had any luck at that time getting in touch and uh, thought that as we get the show started here today, I would check in with him again and uh, just see what he knows. Hello. Hi, is this Daniel? Yes, it is. Hi, Daniel. This is Jeff Horwich from down in Minnesota. Hi, Jeff. Hi, how are you doing? Good. Well, if you, if you have just a few minutes to talk with me, I, I was curious... Um, how things are going for you? Uh, when when we spoke the other day, sort of immediately after the uh, uh, the earthquake, your daughter's family was was unheard from. Is that still the case? It is still the case, unfortunately. We did get a little bit of good news today. My my daughter's orphanage, where she spent three years, all the kids are fine. There's 220 kids housed between the two orphanages, and they're and they're all in good shape. But as far as uh, our family there. No word yet. And and we're talking about uh, your daughter's uh, mother, and she has some brothers? Is yeah, right? yeah. Her, her, her biological mother, and two brothers and two sisters, and three nieces. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, no, no word. And you've been down there uh, a number of years now to visit, and tell me again what the, uh, the living situation was like, and what, what their home was like, presuming they were, they were at home at the time. Yeah, I, I was trying to figure that out. At 5 o'clock, I, I presume that uh, her mother and, and the younger babies would be home. Um, and their home is up the hillside of Port-au-Prince, maybe oh, at the 500 to 1,000-foot level above town. 
you know, kind of the shanty towns, if you if you would, uh, built out of concrete uh, cinder blocks, usually on a, on some type of a concrete slab that mm-hmm. are just sort of creeping up the hillside now. As you know, more and more people are are squatting on on land there that's not occupied, and uh, their place is higher up on the ridge, which that might be one good thing. I just heard now. Why do you understand that that might be that might be a good thing to be up on the ridge? Well, my experience with with low level earthquakes like this that are quite close to the surface mm-hmm. is that uh, bowl areas, if you will, have more of a tendency for, for uh, the violent shaking because you're sort of like the jello, you know, bowl effect. Okay. And up on on the ridge where you, you know you have more uh, bedrock outcroppings right to the surface. Uh, it's been my experience is a little more solid, you know, living in Alaska, we deal with a fair bit of earthquakes, and that's what I've seen there, comparing the two different places. And as, you know, what seems like a pretty much a communications blackout continues here, how how is your daughter handling this? I mean, is she still going to school? Yeah, she's she's at school, and she she's pretty upset. It seems like she's... It, of course, yeah. It's really sinking in now, and she, it seems like it, things are getting a little bit more tense for her each day it passes that we don't hear anything. You know, she's had tears in her eyes the last couple of days here now. Mm-hmm, naturally. Do do either or both of you just uh, kind of want to get on a plane and, and just go? I mean, find her family and find out uh, whether they're okay? Well, we, we do. I've considered that. Um, you know, I, I hear that the Port-au-Prince airport is closed now, so the, probably the only way you could go to be to fly into the DR and take a, the bus over. Mm-hmm. Dominican Republic, right? Um, yeah, I don't know what, what if we could really help out by being there. Um, if we know that they're alive and we can get them some money, I think that's probably the most uh, effective way to combat this at this time for us. And then, of course, we'll be going there this summer again. Uh, well, Daniel, I, I wish you news soon and uh, certainly good news. Okay. Well, thank you very much. All right. It's nice to talk with you. Thanks for your time. All right. Good evening. Okay, that's Daniel Beichlein. He lives in Auk Bay, Alaska, with his daughter, Sophia, who was adopted from Haiti. Now, when something on this scale happens, of course, you get people all over the world wondering how they can help. You can give money, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But we're kind of, um, I don't know, tech-minded here at In The Loop. And one of the global responses that caught my eye this time around, something called crisis mapping. And that's why I've got Ori Okolo on the phone with me. And you're talking with me from South Africa, if I got that right? Yes, I'm based in Johannesburg. Okay, and you're you're Kenyan originally. You went to school here in the U.S., so you're you're a very a global person yourself. Ori is the head of a crisis mapping website. It's called Ushahidi, and that's a word that means testimony in Swahili. And from the very early hours, she and a team of people around the world were crisis mapping the area around Port-au-Prince in Haiti. So, Ori, first of all, what do we mean by this term crisis mapping? The idea of crisis mapping is basically by aggregating information from different sources, so from individuals who can submit reports via email or the web, from Twitter, and also from other sources like YouTube and Flickr. And what we do is we pull all those different strands of information together and enable people to visualize it on a map. So you can pinpoint, let's say, a particular city or a particular street on a city and see, for instance, in the earthquake, if the building damaged or mm-hmm. people buried under the rubble. And what are some of the specific things that you're mapping around the area of the earthquake zone? You've got big things like hospitals that are open and smaller things like individuals maybe who are looking for family members. Uh, what all's on the map? 
Definitely, we're now getting lots of reports about people looking for missing family members. Uh, there are also reports on roads that are either open or closed, so just in terms of logistics, reports on um, where help is needed, whether it's people who are still trapped or medicine or food is required. So most reports about the type of assistance that's needed. Tell me logistically how the team works. Uh, you're in South Africa. I imagine most of the people you're working with are not. They're all over the place, right? They are all over the place. As soon as uh, we got the news, we then set up what we're calling a situation or a war room on Skype, which I think as of the last count has about 40 people from all over the world, from different fields, mapping, techies, translators. And basically we've been going around the clock for the last two days. So when people in the States go to sleep, the developers who are based in Africa take over. And when we go to sleep, the people in the, the U.S. take over. Hmm. And everybody's communicating over a, a Skype conversation. Yes. Well, it's one thing to put this all together, and it's a really amazing resource for someone like me to look at. Are you uh, hearing that it's actually being used in Haiti or otherwise to bring assistance where it's needed? Most of our traffic at the moment is coming from the United States. I presume people who are just trying to keep track of what's going on. We have received a few hits from Haiti itself, but obviously with uh, communication situation there, it's probably you know not the first place that's... Uh, people are going to try and go. But as the word gets around and as news filters out, we're trying to be sort of a one-stop source of information rather than having to track several different feeds at once. Are you more or less satisfied with the, the level and amount of information that you're able to get for the map at this point? Or are you, or are you just kind of gritting your teeth because it is so difficult to actually get information out of Port-au-Prince? Um, I'd say I'm happy, but we could be doing better, especially in terms of caring more from the people locally. But that's a challenge, not just from us. I think it's everybody's facing that challenge. You know, it could be better, but given the amount of time that's elapsed, I think we've done an amazing job. Well, Ori, it's getting uh, quite late where you are, I think, so I wish you some sleep, uh, but I'm grateful that you're able to take a few minutes and help us understand this. Thank you, and thank you for the interest. Ori Okolo is a lawyer, human rights activist, and uh, she blogs at KenyanPundit.com. If you want to check out the evolving crisis mapping of Haiti, you can go to Haiti.Ushahidi.com. If you're not sure how to spell that, just go to InTheLoopShow.net and look for this interview. We will link you to it. Psychologically, I think this is one of those disasters like uh, the Asian tsunami or definitely Katrina, where even if you haven't given a second thought to Haiti before now, suddenly... Most of us want to give something. Online, there are Donate Now buttons everywhere. Just saw George Clooney's putting together a celebrity Haiti telethon. And uh, say, Kanye, uh, if you're not busy, why don't you swing on by? The destruction of the spirit of the people of southern Louisiana and Mississippi may end up being the most tragic loss of all. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Please call. Oh, no. I still cringe for Mike Myers, even after all these years. Anyway, when you have a bazillion charities, including a celebrity telethon, suddenly everywhere you look asking for money, we've never heard of most of them, but we want to give. What do you do? That's why I've got Kelly Grant from SmartMoney.com on the phone with me here. She's been writing about that, and I thought we would hit her up for a quick conversation. Kelly, thanks for coming on In The Loop. Thanks for having me. So the first important question is, how do you not get scammed? What are the basic tools to make sure that you're actually giving to the Haiti relief effort? 
Well, it's really hard, actually, right now, because right after there's a tragedy, you'll see scammers coming out of the woodwork. Right after Katrina, to give you a good perspective, the FTC eventually estimated that about 60% of the charities that popped up were fraudulent. Wow. Really go with charities that you know, that have that big name recognition, like the Red Cross or like Doctors Without Borders. So you would urge people not to give on impulse here, even though the impulse is strong. Don't give on impulse. Uh, you know, you're going to be getting uh, potentially phone calls from telemarketers. You really want to be doing your due diligence and checking into the charity. In terms of how you donate, um, if you're really concerned about getting all of your money there, especially if you're making a sizable donation, mm. don't pay with a credit card because the credit card company is going to charge the charity actually that 2 to 3% fee that usually a merchant would pick up. And uh, another good reason not to pledge over the phone is some of those for-profit telemarketing companies can take more than half of your donation. You know, bottom line, the most effective thing for you, uh, tax-wise, and for the charity getting the most money is going to be to mail a check. What if people feel an urge to, uh, you know, not give to the Red Cross because that seems too easy in a way? Like maybe you want to you research it and get creative and make sure that you're having a distinctive impact with your money. I mean, as, as trite as that sounds, I think I, I would admit to that impulse myself. No, and I think that's perfectly natural. So something that you could do is to check out some of the independent charity navigators or assessors. Uh, we've got Charity Navigator, GuideStar, and the Better Business Bureau's Wise Giving Alliance, or mm. three right off the top of my head. All online, right? all online, and they basically go through charities' finances and will try to figure out which charities are most effective at giving. But they also really look at the plan. So, you know, you might... uh be focused on medical care, and they'll tell you which charities are looking at that. They'll talk about which charities are really working on uh, getting people food and water. You can really figure out where you want your money to go and make sure it gets there. Do we have any sense, as you've been looking into this this early, about what specifically is needed? Money, (laughs) broadly across the board. Mm -hmm. Uh, Charities have been saying outright that they do not want things. Yes, people are going to need clothing. They're going to need uh, potable water. They're going to need food. But the logistics of distributing that, they're so complex that you know they, the charities do not want just boxes of stuff showing up. Mm-hmm. And it's also very expensive for them to, to ship it and transport it and then to sort through it. So it's much easier for you to send a charity money, uh, which they can then use to purchase whatever they need, transport whatever they need, and get th- those funds to the people that need them. Should you give to a, a Haiti-specific charity? I mean, think about the Red Cross, and like they pay for all kinds of things all over the world. If I really want to give to Haiti, maybe that's not the best way to go. The key really is you want to give to a charity that already has an on-the-ground presence there. You don't necessarily want to give to a new charity or some sort of a startup that is really responding specifically to this disaster because they don't have the connections to be able to move money and effort quickly. And I just have to say, like, poor Haiti, they were in bad shape before, and and this is horrible. And, of course, they had to have their earthquake right after the end of the U.S. tax year. Like, could it have come just a few weeks earlier when everybody's looking for tax reasons to donate? But... um... I think in this case that people will will certainly make the move, uh, even if there's no immediate tax (laughs) relief for them here. Rise above their 1040s. Uh, Well, it's been good to talk with you, Kelly. Thanks very much for taking some time for us. Thank you. It's Kelly Grant, Senior Consumer Reporter with SmartMoney.com. And now, in fine public radio fashion, we will embrace our pedigree and play some music, as if to say... We're going places. That place we've been before this music, that was one thing, and now we are going to a different thing. In this case, uh, it's instrumental from uh, our buddies the Smarts. Uh, but don't let the, the languid music fool you, because we are about to crank it up. 
you know, a couple of weeks ago, just at the end of 2009, we put a call out to listeners of the show asking them to write us movie trailers for the year 2010. And we got a bunch of them back, uh, sort of picked through them, and chose three of our favorites. We've produced them up, and I'm going to play them for you on the show today. This one came from Charles Hunter in Decatur, Georgia, who sent us the basic script, and we dug into it a bit, added a little dialogue and some voices and all that fun stuff. Charles took some disparate strands from current events, and he wove them together into a scenario that, uh, I think, makes a pretty cool-sounding movie coming out in the next year. In a bleak 2010 economy where people cry out for security. Four ex-Marines spend everything they've got on an airplane and a dream. Marine Corps Airways. Watch as these jarheads give all to serve their passengers. Anyone caught leaving their seat while the seatbelt safety sign is active will drop and give me 20. See them learn the subtleties of customer service. Did you call for a flight attendant? I'm sorry, I pressed it by accident. Then I suggest you don't make that mistake again. Okay. Is that understood? Yes. What was that, Maggie? Sir, yes, sir. And watch them deal with a few unexpected surprises. Ah! Is that a bomb? Not on my plane. Not all passengers reach their final destination. Oh, wait. That's not a bomb. Marine Corps Airways, coming soon to a theater near you. Oh, yeah. Okay, we'll have two more of your movie trailers as the show goes on. That one again from Charles Hunter in Decatur, Georgia. And if you missed the movie trailer assignment, well, you're probably not on our email list. Uh, and if you would have liked to have written us a movie trailer, well, you should be on our email list. Go to intheloopshow.net. Click join the network on the right-hand side of the page there. I think we might have also posted this one on Facebook, but uh, the email list people, they got it for sure. That narrator, by the way, uh, and you'd be forgiven for thinking that is the actual movie trailer narrator guy, uh, but no, he's he's dead, as a matter of fact. Uh, this is Mark Benninghoffen, and he works for a small radio production company in Minneapolis called Shout Radio Productions. We're awful glad to know him. Uh, his business partner in that venture is Joe Weissman bass player for the smarts who's got a great set of pipes as well and he's gonna voice a trailer for us a little later in the show just full full transparency there so you know where everybody's coming from now as we put last week's episode to bed this whole nbc late night thing was just starting to go down i think it had just broken that day so i didn't have a lot of time to work with but i did offer my parting thoughts on that show in musical form as you'll recall jay leno is not funny And as you can probably tell, this week, my cold is gone at last. Thank you. Thank you. Now, putting aside the fact that I have probably forestalled any opportunity I might ever have to work for Jay Leno, I stand by that statement. And while all this was unfolding, I started poking around like everybody else just to see what folks were saying. And I found a blog post from about two weeks before, posted New Year's Eve, a set of media predictions for 2010. And it called this thing. And it didn't just say, you know, generally NBC's late night uh, lineup is in trouble. It said, within the Leno-Conan-Fallon entertainment axis, Conan loses. And it went on to get uh, pretty specific. It said Jay Leno was going to move back to The Tonight Show. And after a struggle over some details, Conan would be the one who would be out. Hmm. 
Not bad. So I thought we should talk to this brilliant person who saw it coming and spelled it out so nicely for us and maybe see what else she might know. And Catherine Taylor, thanks very much then for coming into a studio in New York City to talk with me today. Glad to be here. Catherine writes about media for the the management website bnet.com. And, uh, you know, it didn't take a a crystal ball to see that that Leno's show in particular was really a dog. Uh, But why did you call at the time this particular outcome? Why did you see it coming? Well, there were a couple of things. The main thing which actually gets lost in the shuffle is that the affiliates were really having a problem with the show. The 10 o'clock show on any network is supposed to lead into the local news, and the local news is a really important revenue generator for local stations. So even if Leno was performing for NBC the way that they said it would, there was no real way to fix that affiliate problem without pulling the plug. Mm -hmm. Although I have to say, I did not think it was going to come to a head this fast. Now, why was it that Conan, as you suggested, winds up the odd man out here? Because it was really Leno's show that was poor and wasn't doing its job. Yeah, I think that is the case. And while I prefer to watch Conan over Jay, Leno's humor is popular with more people. Plus, they do know that his Tonight Show was a better rated show. And that the Jimmy Fallon thing, he's doing relatively well. There's no way that Conan O'Brien could go back to doing his show, mm-hmm. having been on The Tonight Show. So he ends up being the odd man out. And and it almost puts Jay Leno in the position now of looking like the bad guy for steamrolling Conan and taking his show back. Well, and he's got to, like, slink back to his better times. It's a very weird situation. You wonder, you know, if there's bad blood and if people will follow him back to The Tonight Show after this. I, you know, I think a lot of his viewers will just because there is a lot of you know, anti-Conan sentiment. He's too edgy. He's too goofy. Whatever the case may be. I can't believe the uh, the boomers and the, the boomer pluses don't love the fact that, you know, Conan manages to touch his nipple about every 30 seconds during the show. <laughs> yeah, he seems to have a thing for that in his hips. If nothing else, this looks like, to me, a, a giant, unmitigated, huge fail for NBC as a network. Am I right about that? Or is there any silver lining for them? I don't think there is one. I think, you know, where they really blew it was that they began to run the business by numbers instead of what viewers want. The Jay Leno show move was exactly that. It was a it was a cost saving measure and a way to keep Jay Leno in the fold. They're not doing it because it's a good programming idea. Well, you're right about this particular prediction, or mostly right anyway. So let me ask you about some of your others that you had in that post. You think that there's trouble ahead in 2010 for Facebook. What's going to happen? Well, the thing I talked about specifically was that there's going to be a big privacy gaffe involving Facebook. Late last year, they really opened up the data that's in Facebook. And I don't think a lot of people on Facebook realize that so much of their data is being shared. And uh, Facebook claimed that we're just living a more open lifestyle right now and that blogs and Twitter and all that are an example of it, which is sort of an interesting thing. So right. Well, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, CEO, made a comment, what, just a day or two ago at some some conference or other that is being spun anyway, as people are interpreting it, as him basically saying privacy is over. This is just the way of the world. That's That's halfway to a gaffe right there. Yeah. And how does he end up being the person who decides that is, is a whole other other question. I uh-huh. mean, I you could look at this very cynically as Facebook saying, well, the more open this data is, 
the easier it is for Facebook to make money off it, to target via advertising and all that kind of thing. But it seems that at some point, something big is going to happen where either users have their privacy violated or it's violated to the extent that they didn't click on the right button and they didn't realize what they were doing. And that's going to give Facebook a big problem. Sticking with uh, social networking websites, what's your call for, um, what did I see it in my notes here, what is it called, MySpace? Oh, yeah. Remember them? (laughs) Yeah. What what happens with MySpace this year? I mean, MySpace uh, really obviously lost the battle to Facebook. So what happens when you're in a competition, but the race is suddenly changed? It's like, well, you you decide you're going to switch to a different race. So if you look at what MySpace has actually been all along in some ways, and some of the moves that they've made you know, buying things like I Like, which is, a, I think, a music referral service. It almost seems like they should turn it around and that they'll position themselves as an entertainment site with social networking features. And I also predicted, just for the fun of it, that they'd have to create a new category called like socialtainment or something so that it doesn't look like they're backing out of social networking. They're creating something new. It's great. Trademark that while you have a chance. Exactly. So that's kind of the way that MySpace is going to have to go. Now, does that give them their mojo back? I don't really think so, but uh, we can all dream. Okay, let's go old media now. Newspapers. What's the big trend of the year that you uh, predicted for? the newspaper industry? Well, newspapers, as we all know, have been uh, revenue challenged, especially last year. And the biggest uh, additional revenue stream that gets talked about is online subscriptions. We still haven't seen a lot of activity in that area. I'm sure we will this year. Uh, For one thing, the infrastructure that needs to be built to make these uh, newspaper subscription models happen is being built. But Mm -hmm. the problem I see with this is that all of the interest in this idea seems to be driven by the people who need the revenue, and none of it seems to be driven by consumers. So if you have a product, the sellers think it's great, and the buyers don't want to buy it, what do you have? You mm-hmm. have nothing. And that's really how I think this is going to map out for the most part, unfortunately. That sounds like NBC late night. I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> have you got any new predictions now that 2010 has has begun that you might like to uh, add to your original list from New Year's Eve? Hmm. Now, this is a tough one. Uh I do think that TV networks are going to start getting really, really nervous about online video Mm -hmm. because that is going up. The problem with the current model of free Hulu and all that is that this starts to look like the newspaper industry where online used to be this ancillary thing and Mm -hmm. wasn't that nice and we'll sell a few ads. And then it begins to sort of take over. And you have your Um, finger on the mute button for those commercials that they do make you watch. Yeah, and and actually, we probably will see subscription models come to video too, but I I really view that as a different kind of thing because news is more commoditized business, whereas you can't get a comp for The Daily Show anywhere else. You know, unfortunately, you can read a story in The New York Times or you can read a similar story in The Washington Post. It would take like the whole newspaper industry to go dive, you know, behind a firewall for Mm. something like that to happen. But the problem that I see is that they're... You know, they're starting to train people the same way that earlier Internet generations got trained that online information should be free. People are being trained that online video should be free. And the sooner they nip that in the bud, the better off they'll be. Well, Catherine, thanks very much for sharing your prognostications with us here. I'll look forward to talking with you again, and we'll see how much of this comes true. 
Yeah, well, let me know when I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, keep your feet to the fire. Catherine Taylor writes about media and social media, especially for the management website, bnet.com. Also blogs for adverganza.com. Bnet, by the way, uh, Catherine told us we should say this, happens to be owned by CBS. Hmm, the plot thickens. In any case, let's move along and uh, tackle a few more of these. Remember from last week, uh, we asked all of you to fill in the blank for us. 2010 will be my year of blank. And we got tons of responses to this. We've been following up on some of the more intriguing ones and shared some with you last week. And I'm going to do a couple more for you right now. Here's one that rolled in, I think, on Facebook. Just a two-word answer from this fella. I will let him explain what he's talking about. Chris Kowalski, I'm in the mountains of North Georgia. 2010 is the year we make contact. There's many myths about not being the only thinking beings in this universe. And uh, one of those myths even said that, you know, 2010 was going to be the year, the big year we make contact. I like the idea of someday making contact. You know, everybody thinks that we're, everybody's always looking at the stars, waiting for something from the galaxies far, far away, waiting for the moment. I think it'll happen, but I just wonder if it's going to be more subtle. You know, everything's like, you know, they're going to come down in big spaceships and land and little green men going to ask, you know, take me to your leader. I just wonder if maybe they've already been here a while and maybe they'll make their presence known through something more subtle like the internet or a radio interview. It would be interesting if they were hiding in plain sight. Maybe they've been telling us this whole time that, you know, they are aliens and nobody believed them because we've been inundated with false UFO reports and maybe they look just like us. Maybe it's your next door neighbor. Maybe it's this phone call. Maybe this is the big moment. Thank you, Chris, down in Georgia. Big Georgia-heavy show today, as it turns out. Let's do one more of these 2010 fill-in-the-blankers. And this one's going to be a little unorthodox, actually, because it turns out um, the person who responded, in this case, on our Facebook page, we found out, uh, happens to be deaf. And so what uh, we decided to do is have Anna, Anna Weggle, come on into the studio. Anna, say hello. Hello. And Anna is on, what, Google Chat, right? Yes. Okay, with uh, Rebecca Stone, who lives in Berkeley, California. And Anna is going to relay my questions, and then she will read the responses and relay them to you. So, ready to get started, Anna? Yes. All right, is Rebecca ready? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, Rebecca, just tell me a little bit about yourself. What do you do in uh, Berkeley, California? I'm looking for work, actually. I have a master's degree in deaf education. Is that a tough area to uh, find jobs right now? It seems to be. I did have one, but I quit. Oh. Well, before I ask about uh, the rest of this, I guess I'm kind of curious about that. Why did you quit your job? It might have been a mistake, I guess. It's complicated like these things usually are. But basically, I felt that the kids were getting really short-shifted in their education. But my attempts to change that weren't seen as helpful. I didn't really know or understand how to play the game, so I think I stepped on some toes. And then those people made work very difficult. So you wrote on our Facebook page uh, that 2010 is going to be your year of living dangerously. And I guess you might argue that uh, quitting your job, that's already living somewhat dangerously. In terms of your your goal, what else have you got planned? What big things do you have planned over the next year to uh, try to live more dangerously? Well, I wouldn't say I had actually planned anything more of a dream or a vision. But the thing I would really like to do is get to someplace like India and meet up with the deaf community there, if there is one, and find out what they want for themselves and how I can work into that in any way. 
My feeling, intuitively, is that there are thousands of deaf kids who are just shuttled into rooms or the streets, and I want to kind of Peter Pan them into a school, give them hope, and let them know that deafness is not bad. Well, that sounds really ambitious and adventurous. I hope you make it happen. I guess I have to get out of my living room first. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, I kind of wonder, as, as a deaf person... Do you already live more dangerously than the rest of us? You mean, am I more likely to get hit by a fire truck? Probably, but I have a hearing dog. What's your dog's name? Kuma. It means bear in Japanese. I also have another dog, Echo, so I'm surrounded by very sound-oriented creatures. Other than uh, traffic, what do the dogs uh, hear for you? Kuma is trained to hear if I drop my keys and tell me, which happens all the time, and hearing people don't realize it. Mm. But once you are deaf, you find out just how often it happens. Also, the door, and basically just sound awareness in my environment. So I had to learn to pay attention to her, watch her ears and head, and it helps me know what's going on. If you don't mind saying, how did you lose your hearing? I just put it down somewhere and haven't been able to find it since. That's good. Can we laugh she, at that? And then she wrote erm, okay. and then she's she's writing more. Uh-huh. Actually, it seems to be genetic. Many people in my family have varying degrees of loss, and a couple are like me. Late deafened, it's called. Well, before I let you go, I'm just curious because uh, we're a podcast, a radio show kind of a thing. So uh, how, how did you get into In the Loop, and uh, what do you get out of it? Through Facebook, which is an amazing thing for someone like me, this technology keeps me feeling connected. A friend recommended In the Loop, and that is exactly how often I feel as a late deafened person, or should I say the opposite, out of the loop. I want to know what the buzz is, not just the news. That's what you miss in my circumstance, because you are not really a part of the deaf community, and you are sort of outside looking in through the window at the hearing. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that uh, what we do isn't even more accessible to you, but we're very glad to know you, and uh, thanks a ton for taking some time for us today. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks also, Anna. Yeah, and I'll uh, echo that. Anna, thanks a lot for helping us uh, make this happen. You're welcome. All right, that's Rebecca Stone, uh, Keeps Up With Us, from Berkeley, California. And that is enough for now, these 2010 My Year Of things. Maybe a couple more in the next show, but that's it for this episode. While you're still in a 2010 frame of mind, though, and I know you are, I certainly am, let's hear another one of these movie trailers. This one's from our buddy Craig, Craig Kenworthy, out in Bozeman, Montana. His vision for 2010, the movie. Into a jittery world came a group of people determined to face down fear while telling us just how to save ourselves from ourselves. A group with disposable income to spend and way too much advice to hand out. Well, back in my day, you didn't buy a house you couldn't afford. We uh, gave birth to your mother in a garden shed. Well, I'm just glad we put all our money with that nice Mr. Buffett back in 63. 2010, the year our grandparents spent us out of the recession, but drove us crazy doing it.
I just can't get enough of those horse sound effects. Sandon Totten has just walked into the studio in the meantime. Howdy, Jeff. Hey, Sandon. Uh, howdy, partner. Wearing a not a cowboy hat or even his usual trademark vest or scarf, although he is wearing his usual flock of seagulls haircut. Yep. And a guitar. Strum a bit, will you? Sandon has written a song for the show, and I haven't heard it yet. I'm excited about it. You've been thinking kind of science-y with your music lately, right? Science is just really inspirational because it's just full of rad stuff. I mean, some people like to write about love, or some people like to write about, you know, things that, uh, you know, go on in the day-to-day lives of people. But I really like to write about things that happen in laboratories. Okay. So you have a bit of science news from this week that uh, has inspired you. So um, set it up. What do we need to know to enjoy the music to come. Well, okay, so not much. They just uh, announced some research, though, on what may be the world's first plantimal. It's a little guy, a slug. Plantimal. Plantimal. Okay. And I'll explain. It's a slug called Alicia Chloridica. Ah, sounds like, I think I dated her <laughs> uh, in college. Continue. And it's got uh, a pretty special ability, which I'm going to sing about now. Okay, science students, here is uh, our producer making his in-the-loop musical debut, Sandon Totten. Well, up in the salty waters of the northeast There's a slimy little creature, a silly little beast He has no brains and he has no feet But what he can do is pretty neat Now you all know how a plant stays well They got great green gobs of little organelles Called chloroplasts tucked deep in their cells So all they need is sunlight to keep them feeling well It's called photosynthesis so along comes this slug swimming in the scene it likes to eat algae, it's its favorite greens But it doesn't just chomp, it steals their genes And it puts them in its skin which is now turning green And in its vast network of innards It stores the chloroplast that it stole from its dinner It starts to photosynthesize on its own and then the solar-powered sea slug never needs to eat again. Sandon Totten there with the short musical story of the slug, did you get this, that eats algae, absorbs the algae's genes, then turns itself into a plant. More or less. A plantimal. Sandon's keen to write more science songs for all of you people in the next uh, few months, so keep listening. Last week on the show, we did a big, long interview with somebody who's encouraging people to find gradual ways, even in this nasty economy, to find their way to the work that they love, to a job that they really want to do. And we'd been chatting our little crew here at the show about this a few weeks before and kind of realized that we had in our orbit a number of people who had taken this bad economy as an excuse, uh, whether they intended to maybe, or maybe they're kind of thrown into the circumstances, but had taken it as a reason to pursue some sort of artistic passion. And we had the idea that maybe we should bring some of these folks in and just talk about making that choice and what it's been like and uh, what the what the outlook is. So the first of those we're going to start with today is a guy named Mahmoud Hakima. Mahmoud, thanks very much for making your way into the show here. Yes, thank you for having me. And uh, you live in Minneapolis, is that right? Roseville. Okay, yeah, Roseville. Yeah. So I don't know all the details of your story. We're going to fill some in here. But what I do know, you got laid off last April. Correct. Right? From yes. a job at a museum? Yes. What kind correct. of, what museum? Uh, it's the Science Museum. 
one day I had a job, next day I didn't. Okay, so. So, so you're coming up now on almost a year of trying to make it as an actor. Yes. So why did you decide that rather than looking for another like job job, you would go that route? And why don't I ask you right before you answer that question, how old are you? Oh, I'm 31, but I play anywhere from 15 to 35. <laughs> <laughs> for the casting agents. Yes. <clears throat> watching and listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, a good thing about losing that job was that I had, you know, other opportunities commercials or industrials or, or other plays, you know, their auditions and their uh, shootings are, are the day that I had to work, of course. Mm, okay. So my schedule just opened up completely. You know, I kind of mulled around a bit, you know, thinking for, for a while, thinking, you know, oh, you know, this is going to be hard and, you know, maybe I'll just have to move back to uh, Alabama where I grew up, where my family is from. But I had always wanted to, to, do, to be an independent artist. Well, I looked at that as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So same day that I lost the job, I went to the library and I, I it's different sites you can go on for auditions and stuff. And I, there was like uh, stuff I couldn't do before cause I you know, was working a full time job. Mm-hmm. So I got like in commercials, I got an, a, extra work. I got little acting gigs here and there combined with uh, you know, unemployment insurance, of course, you know, that was enough to support me for at least like almost a year now. Has it been relatively easy? It's been a struggle. Because there's not I me mean, that there are acting jobs out there, but there's never a guarantee that I'm going to get one. You know, mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to find that steady work. What kind of stuff? I mean, like commercials. Yeah, certainly. Com- I guess com- would commercials. Pay all right. Uh, I also produced a, a one man show for the Fringe Festival, hmm. which uh, it did bring in some money. Did you approach this like you were going to make a run at it for a while and uh, have as much fun as you could while it lasted, or did you say, "All right, this is my shot to try and make this stick for all time"? If you can, I yeah I. I I'm in it for the long haul. Well, how close are you to that goal? I mean, oh. when, when does your unemployment run out, for example? And is that a factor in your decision making now? Yes, it is. Uh, June, actually, when, when it runs out. Uh, basically, for unemployment insurance, you get like a certain amount per week. You have to let them know when you work and how much you make per week. Mm-hmm. They take off that sort of certain percentage. It makes up for the gap when you're, when Correct. you're not working. Yeah, yeah. Are you optimistic right now that when June hits, you've got enough momentum that this can carry you through? Yes and no. Much of my time lately has been spent looking for <laughs> what my mother would call a real job. I've been, you know, applying for like temp jobs, things yeah. like that. What is it with mothers and real jobs? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody seems to say, yeah, my mom wants me to get a get a real job. And I always figure if you're making money. Exactly. Yes. It's a real job. My mother is a doctor. So, and, and my, <laughs> my sister is like a veterinarian. My brother's an engineer. And uh-huh. another sister who's uh-huh. an English professor, and I'm an actor. Mm-hmm. I guess that's where that comes from. Have they been uh, supportive, uh, your folks or your mother at least, as you've gone through this the past year? You know, for a while, um, she, you know, I, I would tell her, you know, because I got a lot of jobs in, you know, like touring educational theater companies. And, you know, she would always ask, you know, what's your newest gig? And mm-hmm. I say, you know, I'm, you know, going into schools, you know, performing shows. And she's like, oh, uh, is it Shakespeare? Uh, <laughs> no, it's not Shakespeare. It's uh, probably something you, you never would would yeah. hear of. But, what would um, you perform when you go into a school? Issue-oriented plays. Oh, okay. Like things like harassment or mm-hmm. bullying, violence prevention. Well, that's very important work with great social implications. Is that enough to convince your mom? No. <laughs> no, it wasn't. How does she feel now about your choice to try and, you know, really, really make it as an actor, you know, job by job? Well, there's a lot of should-haves. You, you should have uh, majored in this as opposed to theater. You should have, I mean, look at your brother. He's an engineer. I mean, how come you can't be an engineer? You know, there's there, yeah. there's that too. But one of my goals too is to prove, you know, to my family members that, yeah, you know, I can make it. You know, that's true to myself too, of course, but, mm-hmm. you know, 
they don't think that I can uh, survive for very long. Yeah, and you still believe that you can. I mean, yes. even as the unemployment runs out, mm-hmm. uh, you have great hope that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and I think it's the best to be optimistic. You know, if I'm like, oh, I'm never going to find a job, and you know, if I get that mindset, then that's going to automatically happen. Oh, for an actor, it shows on your face, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. As hard as you might try not to. Do you feel like this is uh, really kind of a fateful time in your life? Mm -hmm. Like you need to make it happen now or else it's kind of return to real jobs and uh, start temping somewhere and kind of work your way toward, you know, just, just paying the bills and you never maybe will get back to taking a chance like this again. Yeah, that's, that, that is a fear. Say for, for example, if I do get hired, um, reception position or anything that's not an acting job and, you know, I need that steady income, you know, mm-hmm. to support myself to pay rent. I, I do worry that I might not be able to, to go back. But... So you're almost scared of landing a real job. Uh, yeah, in a way. So where do you live? You, you rent an apartment? Yes, correct. Same apartment that you rented? Before you lost your job? Yes. So you're able to maintain that same level of... Yeah, of I mean, <laughs> each month, you know, it's like, okay, yeah. what, I, what what can I cut here? You know, what can I... You know, rent, of course, is, is the important thing. I do get worried about, you know, will I be able to continue to do this to support myself? I'm 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 so glad I don't, I don't have a wife or kids, you know. I would not be able to support them at this point. C- can you give me some examples? What did you have to give up along the way this past year? I don't, I don't drive as much. I've been taking the bus a lot. I suppose you just say I, I don't party as much as I used to. You know, got to got to be disciplined on that. Yeah. Even even as you have a little bit more free time, sleep late. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Kind of thing. <laughs> oh, okay. There are more things I want to be doing, but you know, I just can't. I would like to travel. I like to write. At, at this moment, you know, I just have to focus on looking for work. Would you encourage other people to do it, or is this actually kind of foolhardy when you look at it from an objective <laughs> point of view? I think it's always going to be a struggle. But if someone's passionate enough about it, yeah, I recommend highly going for it. You seem like a like a real confident guy, and you seem like pretty pleased with how things have gone. Just wondering, like on a scale from one to five, how how scared are you right now? Zero would be uh, you believe that you're George Clooney, and five would be well, I'm definitely not George Clooney right now. <laughs> uh, probably like two. Really? Yeah. Oh, great! I'm glad that the. Uh, Time's been pretty good for you so far. I'm look. I am looking down the the road, and yeah, you know, I, I know unemployment's going to run out. I'm trying to like widen my range, my mm-hmm. you know, versatility. Sure, Mahmoud, I certainly wish you luck. Oh, thank you. And thank I, you. I think like a lot of people, I admire your guts and taking the leap at a difficult time. Well, thank you very much for having me. Okay, that was Mahmoud Hakima, and uh, it just wouldn't be very nice, frankly, after that conversation we just had, if we were to let him get away without doing a quick plug here for his one-man show, which is going to be restaged here in the Twin Cities in March. It's called Two Bowls of Cereal and Some Bacon. And here's a quick clip. Los Angeles, 1984. One by one, the students file into the room. It's a unique class they're in. The gifted and talented class made up of first, second, and third graders, hand-picked by teachers and the principal to learn in a peaceful environment. As these students take their seats, there's an excitement among them. Giddiness. Today, these students have a new kid. A shy, quiet first grader. Me. March 17th through 19th is when Mahmoud is me back on stage with two bowls of cereal and some bacon. If you want more information, check out bridgeproductions.info. And let's end the show with one final movie trailer for 2010. This one comes to us by way of John Irvin in Minneapolis, who uh, dashed it off passionately and sent it our way. And let me just say, 
before we uh, play this one, if you're politically sensitive, you might want to brace for it. And uh, remember that the views expressed by those who submit movie trailers to In the Loop are not necessarily the views of In the Loop itself, much less Minnesota Public Radio or its host, Jeff Horwich. Go. Just when you and your family thought you had more holiday movie fun than you could endure with George W. Bush and the Iraq War, get set for Barack Obama and the Afghan troop surge. More civilian casualties, more military deaths, more post-traumatic stress disorder than ever before. Think trying to find non-existent weapons of mass destruction is hard? Try keeping the Taliban from taking back control of all territories, continuing the heroin trade, and forcing women to cover their faces. It's bloody, destructive, economy-draining, fruitless fun for the whole family. All right, maybe a little more like a, um, I don't know, a ShamWow infomercial or an episode of Friends, perhaps, uh, than a movie when I put that music on it. But in any case, John, thank you very much for your movie trailer submission. This concludes this episode of In the Loop, which is produced by Sandin Totten and me, with more help each week from Anna Weggle. Don't know what we'd have done without her this week. Thank you, Anna. Looks like we're closing in on 2,000 fans on our Facebook page, which is marvelous. And if you haven't joined up yet, please do. We use the heck out of Facebook. And um, we can use your help more than ever right now in terms of word of mouth, share the podcast with a friend, uh, leave reviews on Facebook or on uh, iTunes. All that's extremely helpful. Just wrapping up here as I look at the uh, the wires before me, it looks like Tiger Woods is, is back. said on Twitter today that he is going to give $3 million to a charity working on Haiti relief efforts. Which is great, which is great. I uh, just have to ask, of course, um, how do we know that's the only one he's given it to? Hard to resist a Tiger Woods joke. I'm Jeff Horwich. Talk to you next week.